you're sitting already, I'm going to ask you to stand back up. Um, so would you stand with me out of respect for reading God's Word? If you would like to follow along, and I hope that you will, I'm going to ask you to bookmark a spot and then open to another. Um, so find Philippians chapter 4, bookmark that. Philippians chapter 4, and bookmark that one. And then flip over, that was Philippians 4, this should be bookmarked, I'm going to try to give you time to find it. Philippians 4, bookmark that, then flip over to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. And those will be the texts that we're reading today. Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 8, will be the first one I would like to read with you all, if I can find it in my own Bible. Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 8, we're going to read through verse 20, if you'd like to follow along. Christian Standard Bible says it this way. It says, In the same region, shepherds were staying out in the fields and keeping watch at night over their flock. Then an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Don't be afraid, for look, I proclaim to you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the city of David a Savior was born for you, who is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be the sign for you. You will find a baby, wrapped tightly in cloth and lying in a manger. Suddenly, there was a multitude of the heavenly host with the angel praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and peace on earth to people he favors. When the angels had left them and returned to heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go straight to Bethlehem and see what has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. They hurried off and found both Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. After seeing them, they reported the message they were told about this child, and all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary was treasuring up all these things in her heart and meditating on them. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had seen and heard, which were just as they had been told. All right, flip over with me to Philippians chapter 4 now. And we'll pick up there in verse 2. Philippians 4, verse 2. It says, I urge Yodia and I urge Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I also ask you, true partner, to help these women who have contended for the gospel at my side, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your graciousness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. Don't worry about anything, but in everything, through prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any moral excellence, and if there is anything praiseworthy, dwell on these things. Do what you have learned and received and heard from me and seen in me, and the God of peace will be with you. Thank God for his word. You may be seated. Now let's pray together. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, God, we come to you today, um, and we are, we are thankful. Um, Lord, we are thankful not because everything is perfect around us, we are not thankful because we have everything we want, Lord, but instead we're thankful because we have a Savior who loved enough, who loved enough to come for us, to make a way for us. Um, Lord, we are thankful 
that we have a good and God and Savior. Um, so, Lord, we, we praise you today. I pray that as we open this word today, that we would see what it means to be joy-filled people, that we would see what it takes to be joy-filled people. And Lord, I pray as a result of our time today, we would go away striving to be people of joy. Um, Lord, I just pray that you would help us, that you would guide us and direct us. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 So. We just read two passages, and I hope you see why we read those passages. Of course, um, we're in this Advent season here, so that was part of the reason we talked about these shepherds. Um, but we'll, uh, hopefully you see how they tie into this here in just a moment. Um, but today is the third Sunday of Advent, and uh, we've called this series The Gift Exchange. The Gift Exchange is we give God... We give away what we have and we get what only God can give. And Colby actually kicked this off for us last week. And um, I, I hate to brag on Colby too much, but didn't he do a nice job? He did do a nice job. Um, so thank you to Colby who brought God's word to you last week. Um, but he kicked it off by talking about the way we prepare for the coming of Jesus by laying aside our complacency. Instead, we prepare for the coming of Christ. And uh, hopefully you got that he wasn't just talking about the coming of Christ in Bethlehem. If not, I don't know that you were listening through the sermon. Um, he was talking about preparing for the second coming of Christ. And that's what we ultimately look forward to. We talked about that in Sunday school this morning. And we, we read um, from Titus 2.13 where Paul calls the, the return of Jesus our blessed hope. Our blessed hope. So we do. We prepare for the second coming of Christ. And today we're going to be moving on to the, to the third Sunday where we talk about this idea of joy. Now, as I started thinking about uh, this Advent season and the topics that come along with them, I started thinking uh, about a conversation we had during Sunday school last week. And I'm just guessing, I'm just guessing that many of you um, either were or are being raised in a similar environment to what I was raised in. Uh, I'm just guessing that it's similar. Um, now, some of you might have different experiences, but I'm guessing a lot of you have similar backgrounds to what I have. Um, if I'm being honest with you, I had never heard this, like I'd never heard of Advent until I was in my early 20s. Um, never, I, I don't remember ever hearing about Advent. Now, I also want to say that I'm not going to, I'm not trying to bash the church that I grew up in. As a matter of fact, it just wasn't a part of the tradition. So I don't think that they were wrong for not bringing it up. I think that's totally fine. And I'm not saying churches have to celebrate the Advent season or even talk about the Advent season to be biblical. I don't think that's the case at all. But do I think they can be helpful? Sure I do. Sure I do. But even whenever I was introduced to this idea of an Advent season, I really didn't understand what it was. Um, I thought, well, I thought about Advent, and I thought, okay, so it's four Sundays as we get ready for Christmas, so it's, it's supposed to invoke these warm, fluffy feelings of, of like, you know, we got the candles and the trees and the greenery and the lights, and, uh, you know, that's supposed to just invoke this feeling of Christmas. That's what I thought about Advent. I mean, really, that's what I thought Advent was. Um, but since I didn't really get it, I thought maybe it would be a good idea to share just a little bit about the Advent season and what its intention is and why we talk about this thing called Advent. Um, I thought it would be helpful if we just took a moment to talk about that. Um, hopefully by now you know that at the Advent season is the four Sundays leading up to Christmas. But see, what I didn't understand is Advent was intended to be a season much like the season of Lent. Uh, are you all familiar with the idea of Lent? Um, 
Lent is this season leading up to Easter, this 40-plus day period. I think it's actually 46. Um, and if somebody could explain to me why 46, I would, I would love that because I still don't understand. Anyway, so it's this 40-plus day leading up to Easter. And Lent, as we know, is supposed to be a time devoted to prayer, fasting, and repentance. So it's a time for prayer, fasting, and repentance. And it's intended to refocus the Christian on Christ and his sacrifice and his victory on our behalf. And that's what the season is aimed at. Now, see, what I didn't realize is that's what Advent is supposed to be, just at a different time of year. It's supposed to be a lot like Lent as we prepare, as we pray, as we fast, as we repent, and we turn back to Christ and look, at, look forward to his second coming. And that's what it's supposed to be as we lead up to Christmas. In these four weeks, each one, we have a theme. Now, different churches do it different ways. Here, because I prefer these, we've done hope, preparation, joy, and love. Hope, preparation, joy, and love. And these point us to different but interrelated parts of the Christian life. Um, But something else I thought was interesting is this week is different from all the others. The third week is different. Um, Some things may even cue you into the difference. Um, Now, some of you aren't very observant, which is something I I really noticed last night. Um, I love, you all know Hunter Gordon. I love Hunter. Uh, Hunter, Hunter's my guy. Like, he's awesome. Um, my mind was blown by how little he realized last night, just last night as we had a conversation. So I told him I was going to call him out. I love the guy, and he's a sharp kid. Um, but, like, I'm not going to embarrass you too much. Anyway, I, I'll let it go. So anyway, I, I had a good time with Hunter last night, and I kind of made fun of him just a little bit. But I, I really do love him. But you guys might just notice that there are even some visual cues that this week is different. Okay, I like these candles. Some, some churches have readings. We've done readings in the past. Um, we like these candles. Did you notice that one of them is a different color? Did anybody notice that? Yeah, it is lit on the third Sunday, which I thought was strange until I actually understood why. Um, see, in this season of, of repentance, in this season of prayer and fasting, the third Sunday, as we talk about joy, is intended to be a reprieve, like a time where we step back and we just give thanks for what we have. We give thanks for who Christ is and what he's done. Which is even why we have this visual cue that it's different. We have a reprieve from the penitence to remember the joy of the promise that we have in Christ. Okay, uh, Sometimes this candle that we lit today is called the shepherd's candle because of that story that we just, that passage we read just a moment ago. Right, The shepherds out here in the, out in the fields watching their flocks by night. And then all of a sudden, God does something and these angels show up and they go away praising God at the end of this. In the middle of the night, these shepherds wind up with the most joyful news they could possibly have heard. That there was a Savior that was born for them. So, to remember joy, we look at the shepherds as they go away praising God joyfully. Now, as I started thinking about joy, I'm just kind of giving you a lay. I didn't even realize I was doing this. This is just my thought process as I started the week. Um, So this is where we wound up. Um, I started thinking about joy, and it all made me think, where do we get our joy? Like, us as a church, like as, as, a, as an individual, where do I find my joy? Where does it really, like if I'm being honest, where does it come from? Is it only, only when circumstances are agreeable to me? Because oftentimes that's the way, I, the way I am. I'm only joyful whenever my circumstances agree with what I want. Um, and that's the only time I really seem to be able to express joy. I hope you know that that's not what, the way we should be. Um, but it also made me think of... <laughs> Some of the 2,000 years of church history we have before us. Okay? So I thought, okay, well, if we can look at 2,000 years of church history, maybe we could find uh, some joy somewhere along the line. 
Um, just so you know, the story of the church is not always pretty. Um, it is not always, uh, um, it's not always even G-rated, okay? Um, sometimes it's ugly, and it's dark, and it's difficult, but there is always, always joy when we look at the church. So whenever we look back, I think we have to ask ourselves, why do we as a church seem so joyless? I mean, I know, I know your lives are hard. I, I know. You all have hard things going on. I know you do. But I believe that we can still be joyful. Um, as I was thinking about church history, I thought I'd give you a few examples of joy in the middle of darkness, in the middle of difficulty, um, and just show you that we can, in fact, be joy-filled people. And the first, first, first person I thought of whenever I started thinking about joy in the middle of a difficult circumstance, I thought about Paul and Silas. You all familiar with Paul and Silas? Okay, so you go to Acts chapter 16, and Paul, he casts this spirit out of a girl. Uh, this girl keeps following him. He gets irritated finally, and he casts the spirit out. Like, he commands the spirit to leave her. She, the spirit leaves her. Uh, there's a problem. This was a slave girl, and this spirit gave her the ability to tell the future. So, her owners, who made money off of her ability, they were, they were upset. They just lost some of their livelihood. This girl was delivered from the spirit, and now they're, they're mad because Paul and Silas came along, and this girl lost her ability, and now they're not making the money that they have. So they stirred up the crowd against Paul and Silas, and in Acts chapter 16, verses 23 and 24, it says this. It says, After they had severely flogged them, they threw them in jail, ordering the jailer to guard them carefully. Receiving such an order, he put them into the inner prison and secured their feet in stocks. Okay, just, just for a minute, think about what just happened to Paul and Silas. They did a good thing. They cast a spirit out of this girl. They did a good thing. And their reward for that was that they were beaten. It says that they were flogged. And then they're like, okay, well, now we're going to put you in jail. Okay, fine. Well, because they, this guard was given this order to guard them carefully, he says, all right, I'm going to make sure nothing happens. You're going to the inner prison. That's a dungeon. And your feet are going into the stocks. So now they've been beaten, they've been thrown into a dungeon, they've got their feet secured in stocks. And then, Acts chapter 16, verse 25, it says that they despaired. No, that's not what it says. I hope you all caught that. That's not what it says at all. Instead, it says that about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. Paul and Silas had been beaten and thrown into a dungeon. And what are they doing? They're having a prayer service and singing hymns to God. <laughs> Is that what you all do whenever you face difficulty? Is that the joy that you express when you face difficulty? Uh, okay, well, my question would be, why not? Why are we different? These guys face very difficult circumstances and still praised God. Um, I thought about this, uh, this guy named Polycarp. Polycarp, and he was martyred uh, somewhere between 150 and 170 A.D. Polycarp, he refused to burn incense to the Roman emperor. In other words, he refused to say that the Roman emperor was a god. That's, that was his crime. And as a result of this crime, he was sentenced to be burned at the stake. He was sentenced to be burned at the stake. Um, as he went to the stake, he refused to be bound, saying, if I have to be burned for my crime, I have to be burned, but I'm not going to recant. I'm not going to turn back. So he wasn't bound, but he was put up, lit on fire. History actually suggests that he wouldn't burn when the fire was first lit, so they drove a spear into him instead. Um, but the tradition suggests that uh, as he went to the stake to be burned, he prayed this prayer. He prayed, O Lord God Almighty, the Father of your beloved and blessed Son, Jesus Christ, by whom we have received the knowledge of you, the God of angels, power in every creature, and of all the righteous who live before you, I give you thanks. 
That you count me worthy to be numbered among your martyrs, sharing the cup of Christ and the resurrection to eternal life, both of soul and body, through the immortality of the Holy Spirit. May I be received this day as an acceptable sacrifice, as you, the true God, have predestined, revealed to me, and now fulfilled. I praise you for all these things. I bless you and glorify you, along with the everlasting Jesus Christ, your beloved Son. To you, with Him, through the Holy Ghost, be glory both now and forever. Amen. Did you all catch that? This guy is about to be burned to the stake and he's praising God for it. He's praising God in the middle of the most difficult circumstance he will ever face. Why do we not have joy in the church? I thought about the Reformation period. You get to about 1527 AD. There's this guy named Felix Mons. Okay, Mons is, Mons is, he cracks me up. All right. Um, Mons. I think it was a lot like, a lot like us. Mons came at a time where, where you could not disagree with the Roman Catholic Church or the Pope. To disagree with the Roman Catholic Church or with the Pope meant not only to reject tradition, it not only meant that you would disavow yourself from the church, but it also meant that you were committing crimes against the state. So, Mons, having turned back to Scripture as the guiding rule for the Christian life, he, he rejected the practice of infant baptism. Um, that was his crime, rejecting the practice of infant baptism. He, not only would he not have his infant son baptized, but he went a step further. Um, he was actually practicing what they called a second baptism, so they would baptize believers. A lot like what we practice here at Christian Fellowship. So that's what he was guilty of. Um, so he was ordered to recant his position, to turn back, and Mons and his friends that night, after get, being given that order, they met, and as they were meeting, guess what they celebrated with? Baptism. Uh, they held believers' baptisms that night. That led to Mons being sentenced to death by, and I'm going to quote, by final baptism. That's how he was martyred. When he was, where he was taken to the middle of a river, bound and thrown into the boat where he would drown. Um, as Mons awaited the execution of his sentence... Uh, he, he wrote a letter to some of his fellow believers, and I just wanted to read a few of these excerpts because I think they're very telling about Mons and what he believed and really about where he found his joy. Mons wrote this. He said, My heart rejoices in God who gives me, who gives me much knowledge and wisdom so that I may escape the eternal and never-ending death. He also wrote, I praise you, O Lord Christ from heaven, that you turn away my sorrow and sadness, you whom God has sent me as a Savior and for an example and a light. You have called me into your heavenly kingdom already before my end has come, that I should have eternal joy with him and should love him in all his righteousness, without which nothing avails or subsists. He goes on, he says, They call upon the authorities to kill us, by which they destroyed the very essence of Christianity. But I will praise the Lord Christ, who exercises all patience towards us. All right. Y'all see the circumstances surrounding these men, right? Y'all feeling joyful right now? (laughs) Circumstances aren't pretty, are they? These men faced incredibly difficult circumstances, but time after time after time, you find them singing praises. You find them praising their Savior, which made me ask the question, where did they get their joy? See, whether they had read Paul's writing or not, 
Um, I believe they knew the truth of Philippians chapter 4, and that's what I want to focus in on for the next just, just few minutes. We're going to go through this quick, I promise. So we're going to be moving as we get through this. Um, but I believe they knew the truth of Philippians chapter 4, and I want to focus on the activities of joy-filled people today. Uh, and I'm just going to show you three of them. Now, before we get into the first one, I want to tell you I considered adding a fourth because at the very beginning of this, Paul, he writes and he says, he's urging these people named Yodia and Syntyche, which, by the way, anybody ever met somebody named Yodia or Syntyche? Um, I'm not naming our next child that. That's just not, not going to happen. Um, but he urges them to agree, to cooperate. Um, I, I almost added that we need to cooperate in the church if we want to experience joy. Um, and I, I do believe that that's a good idea. If you want to experience real joy, we need to strive for cooperation, for agreement. But rather than arguing with one another, he says, uh, he says instead, we need to do something different. In verse 4, he commands, he says, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. My goal today isn't just to beat you up. My, my goal today is actually to urge you to rejoice. To actually praise God, to celebrate, to be joyful. Um, but what exactly, whenever Paul says rejoice in the Lord always, what are we being commanded to do? What does it mean to rejoice? Like, y'all, I don't walk around my day-to-day life like, oh, I'm just rejoicing today. I, I, I don't. I don't use that kind of language, and I'm guessing most of us don't. Um, so, what in the world does this really mean? Now, we should probably know from context what it means, but we should also know what this means if we're going to understand the book of Philippians. Uh, the book of Philippians uses this, out of all of Paul's writings, about half of the times he uses this word is here in Philippians. It's like the main theme of this letter is this idea of rejoicing or having joy. Um, and the word here in the Greek is this word kairo, kairo, which means to rejoice, to be glad, or to be joyful. Um, and I think, all right, I'm, some of y'all are just going to totally check out. I'm going to tell you about the structure of this word in the Greek. So here you go. Um, I, I think it helps us understand, though. Helps us understand here. Paul repeats this word in verse 4, and it's the same form both times he says it. Rejoice in the word in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Okay. So what is he commanding us to do? Um, well, let's think about this command. Let's just think about what a command is. Because that's the way this is written, is a command, right? He's not giving him an option. He's saying, do this. He says, rejoice. Um, the funny things about the funny thing about commands is whenever you give or you get a command. There's a responsibility to respond to that command, right? Um, I, I think that's pretty simple. I think that's pretty basic. If I tell my kids to go clean their room, I expect a response from them, right? And that response would be to go clean their room, right? I say, go clean your room. I expect them to go clean their room. Pretty simple. You get the point. Okay. God tells Abraham, sacrifice his son. What does God expect Abraham to do? To sacrifice his son. It's pretty simple. We get the point. The, the command necessitates a response. And to not obey, that means disobedience. Okay, now, now I, I'm just going to ask you to follow my logic here in just a minute. Because, look, Paul is saying rejoice in the Lord always, which means he expects the church to respond to that command by doing what? By rejoicing. He expects them to respond by rejoicing. Now, just, again, follow my logic. Does God command us to do things he doesn't really expect us to do? No, no. He commands us to do things he expects us to do. We have a responsibility to respond. Now, would God expect us to do something that was impossible for us to do? Now, okay, if he tells us to rejoice, would he, would he say, rejoice, but I know you really can't, but I'm going to command you to anyway? No, of course not. Of course not. Which means, if you just follow this logic, if Paul is writing and commanding these people to rejoice, doesn't that mean they have what they need to rejoice? 
I believe it does. Okay, so that's one thing. One, it, it demands a response. And the second thing we need to notice about this word is that it's plural. It's not singular. He's not saying, well, just this guy named Clement that he wrote to, yeah, he needs to respond by rejoicing. No, that's not it at all. We, as the church, we need to be glad. We need to be joy-filled. We need to express joy and rejoice. Um, we have been given the tools we need to be joyful, so we need to go and do it. But how? Okay, see, Paul doesn't just write to these people who are going through a difficult time. He's like, hey, buck up, kiddos. That's not what he does, is it? No, he says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. And then he goes on to tell them how they can. See, in the middle of this darkness, in the middle of a broken world, I believe that we too can have joy. I believe that we can rejoice, like we can actually have real and lasting joy, not something that's just like superficial, like, oh yeah, I'm happy. No, I believe that we can rejoice, that we really can. I believe we've been given everything we need, and it starts, I think, with these three activities that we find here from Paul. And first, is that those who want joy-filled lives, first of all, y'all want a joy-filled life? I do. Um, I want a joy-filled life. So, what do we do then? Well, first, if you want a joy-filled life, forgive. Forgive. Forgive others. If we rewind back to verse 2 here in Philippians chapter 4, we find that these two women, Yodia and Syntyche, that they are told to agree in the Lord. Now, we don't know what the specific issue that they have is. We have no idea. Um, And since Paul doesn't address it directly, I'm guessing it wasn't what I'm going to call a gospel issue. I'm guessing it wasn't like a core issue. See, Paul doesn't usually have a hard time like, like giving people what they need, right? If there's a real problem, he doesn't pull any punches. He lets them know what's going on. Um, So I'm guessing, just guessing, that this wasn't a matter of doctrine. Um, As a matter of fact, Paul, uh, he actually says that he had to correct Peter at one point, right? The Peter that we talked about two weeks ago, who would be um, one one of those on the foundational level of the church. He has no issues correcting Peter when he's wrong. I don't think he has a hard time correcting Yodia and Syntyche if they have a problem that needs to be corrected. He just doesn't address the problem, so I'm guessing not a core issue. Instead, I'm guessing it was a matter of preference. Um, And honestly, churches split all the time over matters of preference. All the time. Not matters of doctrine, over matters of preference. So, instead, what Paul says here is to agree in the Lord. Um, I guarantee you all we have differences. I I guarantee you we have especially preferential differences. I promise you we have preferential differences. Some of you are nodding because we've talked about some of those differences. And I'm good with that. We can have preferential differences. I don't think that that's something that we should break fellowship over. I am okay with having those. And I'm okay with even having passionate arguments about them. I'm good with that, y'all. Like, that's okay. But Paul here says, agree in the Lord. Agree in the Lord. Um, Look, what we need to agree on is Jesus. That's, as the church, we need to agree on Jesus. Now, I know that we can't just say, yeah, we all love Jesus. Okay, because what does that really mean? I know that there's more to it than that. But we need to agree in the Lord. We need to agree on those core, those essential, what I'm calling the gospel issues. We have to agree on those. And we need to forgive others whenever we have different preferences and we need to move past them. Okay? So, that's okay. I, I, I forgive you all for being wrong on your preferences. So, we'll move past that. Um, but we need to agree in the Lord. All right? So, um, I thought about calling somebody out at this point, just proving that, but for the sake of time, I'm not going to today. Uh, the fact is, 
we can still get along even if we disagree about certain things. Which is why I believe Paul writes in verse 5, he says, let your graciousness be known to everyone. And we have different translations that we're reading from. I'm sure that there's different words here. But uh, again, it's a command. It's a command. Let it be known. Let this graciousness be known. Other translations say, uh, let your gentle spirit, your reasonableness, your humility, your modesty, your moderation, let those things be known. Let those be obvious. Look, our graciousness, our graciousness includes extending grace, extending forgiveness. Rather than striving to get even to make sure, what we need to do is we need to make sure that we are forgiving the wrongs done to us. Um, A lot of us have a mentality of, I'm going to make sure they get what they have coming to them. Uh, that's That's not a Christian response. We need to be forgiving people. And rather than assuming the worst of people's words and actions, we need to assume the best of them. Um, I read this week from an English pastor from the 1700s named John Gill. I read, he said this. Um, he said, putting up with the affronts and injuries and bearing them with patience and interpreting things in the best sense and putting the best constructions on words and actions that they will bear. We need to assume the best of people. Um, we should assume the best of people. Extend them grace. Let your graciousness be known. And why should we forgive? Well, Paul gets to it in the last part of verse 5. He says, because the Lord is near. The Lord is near. Last week we talked about preparation. We believe that Christ is going to come back. Do you want to be sitting around holding grudges whenever Jesus shows up? Or would you rather move past that, forgive people, and look forward to the coming of our Savior? I know which camp I would like to be in. So, one thing that we can No, is if the Lord is near, there's a day coming when he's going to make every wrong right. We don't have to demand justice because Christ is going to bring justice. It's his. So we look forward by forgiving others. You all want to have a joy-filled life? Start by forgiving people. Forgive. Second, those who want joy-filled lives, they praise. They praise. Verse 6, he says, don't worry about anything. Um, Some people know it, uh, be anxious for nothing, right? Y'all ever heard this verse before? Be anxious for nothing. Um, sounds super easy, doesn't it? Um, <laughs> but again, I, follow, follow the logic here. This is similar to the Greek word for rejoice just a moment ago. It's very similar. Um, now, it's a different word, but the way it's used is similar. Again, he writes this, second person, so it's a command. He's saying it to y'all because um, it's plural. So it's not just you, it's y'all. Um, I guess it should be all y'all because that's the plural of y'all. Um, So he's writing to y'all, okay? He says, you, you have something to do. You have something to do. And a few minutes ago, some of you were agreeing, and I actually caught a few of you nodding your heads as we walked through this logic, as we said, well, we've been commanded to rejoice, which means God has given us what we need to rejoice. Some of you were nodding your heads with that. Here, Paul has commanded, God, in his word, commands us to be anxious for nothing. Now, I've heard a lot of people read this verse and be like, yeah, but it's not that easy, yeah, but you don't understand. The human, human composition is complex. <laughs> I know. I know. I still believe he's given us the tools we need to not be anxious. Um, and this comes in a time when there are countless, a countless number of people who deal with anxiety. Who deal with worry on a regular basis. And I'm not trying to be insensitive. That's not my goal. Because um, I've seen people who have been debilitated by worry and anxiety. But I do believe that God has given us the tools to deal with that and instead rejoice. Now, again, don't want to be insensitive. And I know that the issue of anxiety and worry is complex. I know. I know. 
I'm certainly not an expert on psychology and psychiatry, but I have done some reading. I have done a little bit of looking. Um, and I still believe that God has given us what we need. And he spells out here what we do. He doesn't just say, don't worry, period, the end. No, he goes on, doesn't he? He gives us the antidote to worry. He gives us what we need instead to move on. He says, don't worry about anything, but... But, and underline that, circle it, and like, do whatever you can to make sure you see that word but in your Bible. He says, but in everything, through prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. Instead of worry, we're given a different command. He says, don't worry. Instead, here's what you do. He says, he says, bring these requests to God. Present your requests to God. Go to Him. And how? Well, through prayer and petition, we go to God with whatever might cause us anxiety. And if we truly believe what the Bible says, that we have the God that spoke all things into existence, who has all resources at his disposal, who holds your life in his hands. Like, he has everything. Take your worry, your struggle to him, and trust that he's going to handle it. And if we believe that we have that God, why should we worry? Like, death wasn't a big deal for him. That's been handled. Why should we worry about the other things? Like it, it's illogical when we start to think about it. But there's a catch. We bring these requests, these prayers and petitions to God. We bring these prayers and petitions to God. But he tells us how. He says, with, by prayer, and I, I memorized this from the NASB, he says, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving. With thanksgiving. Um. I, I, would, I would guess, and this is just a guess, maybe speculation is not a good idea, but I'm going to do it anyway. Um, but I would guess that most of us are pretty good about bringing things that we need to God. Like, you know, we have this laundry list of things that we want God to do. And we're, we're good about spelling those out. Like, God, here's what I want. I want this and this and this and this. And God, you need to address this and this and this. And God, take care of these problems. And we walk away. But how often do we bring prayer and petition with thanksgiving? With Thanksgiving. Um, I'll just tell you, I, I had to admit um, just yesterday, actually, that um, I, I, my prayer life was not what it should have been. Um, uh, and uh, my, I think like most Christians, I probably go through seasons where I, I feel like I have this great prayer life, and then other times it's like it just really kind of fades off. Um, am I alone in that? I don't think I am. Um, so I had to admit that my prayer life hadn't been what it should have been. Um, so just recently, I've, I've kind of been convicted of the need to pray for all things. Uh, but then as I was thinking about this, like how often, whenever I pray, do I thank God in the middle of that prayer? How often do I actually say, God, I need, like, there's this problem here. I need you to address this. But God, thank you for the work you've already done. I'm going to give you a simple one because I don't think there's anything too small to take to God, just to be clear. Um, I really don't. Um, I was rocking my son the other night. Um, got an eight-month-old son, rocking him. He was a little grumpy and he was yelling at me because he's selfish. Um, no, I'm teasing. Um, but he is. I mean, babies are. So anyway, so he wanted to be rocked. So I was rocking him. He was not very happy and I was rocking him. And I started praying at that moment, like, God, I need my son to sleep. Uh, I need my son to go to sleep. Now, don't misunderstand. I'm not complaining about my son. He's a great sleeper. Um, but I prayed, I need my son to sleep. And I realized I'm just giving a laundry list of things I want God to do for me. I'm taking the genie approach. God, it'd be really nice if my eight month old son would just sleep all night, every night, never have any kinds of problems with that. Right? Wouldn't everybody love that? So I prayed, and I stopped, and I said, God, you know what? I would love it if he would go to sleep, but I thank you that I have a healthy son, and I'm thankful that you have given him to me to raise up and to send out another arrow in my quiver. 
I'm thankful. And honestly, it didn't necessarily change the way my son slept that night. Maybe it did, maybe it didn't. But it changed me. See, whenever we go to God by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, and we present those requests to God, what we find is oftentimes it doesn't necessarily change our circumstances. Maybe it will, maybe it won't. I believe God answers prayers like that, sure. But I promise you it will change you. It will change you. And the worry and the anxiety that you had before, it begins to fade as we go to God and we thank Him for what we do have. And even if you say, look, I don't have any of these great things to be thankful for. You don't know the struggle I'm going through. You have a God who loved you enough to send His only Son. We're going to celebrate Christmas. Sent His Son to take away your sin so that you could be reunited with the God who loves you. Don't tell me you don't have anything to be thankful for. We have something to be thankful for. And the antidote to worry, the antidote to this, this, this struggle in life is to remember that we have a God who has given us far more and we should be thankful for the things He has given. And He says, whenever we remember that, whenever we remember that antidote, He says in verse 7, He says, The peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. When we, whenever we do what verse 6 demands of us, the, we find that God's peace stands guard over your heart, over your mind, over your life. Um, Warren Wearsby, he actually wrote this, and he helped, he helped, uh, helped me understand it a little bit. Um, he wrote this and actually explained this word, will keep or guard your mind. He said, the antidote to worry is the secure mind. And the peace of God shall keep, which means garrison or guard like a soldier, your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Y'all know if, if we do what verse 6 demands of us, we have the peace of God standing like a soldier, guard over your heart and your mind. That sounds like good news to me. You want the joy-filled life, first you forgive others, then you praise God for what you've been given in Jesus. Those who want joy-filled lives forgive, they praise. Third, those who want joy-filled lives, they focus. They focus. Okay, verse 8, he says, finally, brothers and sisters, list these eight things. He says, dwell on these things. He gives these eight categories to focus on, those things that are true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, virtuous, or praiseworthy. And I know different translations have different words, but you get the point, right? We focus on these things instead. It's almost as if Paul's saying, your problem with worry is solved by shifting your focus from the ugly things in the world to the good things that God has given. The good things of God in this world. Shift your focus. Look, the problem we have with worry is not a battle of the flesh, it's a battle of the mind. The battle's between your ears. Shift your focus. Shift the focus. When we struggle with a lack of joy, the solution is this. It's to patiently and consistently retrain our minds to focus on the good things that God has created and the good things that God has done. Shift it. Patiently and consistently retrain your mind. And in verse 9, he gives one more command. He says, do what you have learned and received and heard from me and seen in me. As we retrain our minds to focus on these things of God... We do what we've been taught to do. See, there's oftentimes a disconnect, and I just admitted mine, about prayer. There's oftentimes a disconnect between what we, what we believe is true and what we practice. There's oftentimes a disconnect there. If we, want, if we know that Jesus conquered death on our behalf, we should live as if he has. If we really believe that's true, we should live as if we believe that's true. And that will, I believe, result in joy and a whole host of other behaviors that should and I believe must define the Christian life. And then the last part of verse 9, he says, The God of peace will be with you. Um, 
I believe the reason that Paul can promise promise the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension. And by the way, you ever been around those people who have peace that's just like beyond comprehension? Like you should be like just really despairing right now. Have you ever been around those people who should be like they're going through unthinkable things and they're like, it's okay. It's okay. God is good. Like I've been around those people and I'm just like, what is wrong with you? And then I realize nothing's wrong with them. As a matter of fact, something is very right with them. They know what they've been given in Jesus. And how can they know that that peace is there? Well, because the God of peace, the God of peace is with them. The peace of God guards their hearts and minds. Why? Because the God of peace is there with them. It's his peace. And he said he's not going anywhere. And if, if you forgot, um, just in case you forgot, the ruler of this world and the things of this world tried to overcome the God of peace once. Um, and if you don't remember how that ended, it ended with Jesus walking out of a tomb. Um, so I'm confident that he will win again. So those who want joy-filled lives, they forgive, they praise, and they focus. So what? I'm going to try to tie this up nice and neatly and succinctly. Um, first, how do you have the joy-filled life? Do you want a joy-filled life? And if so, forgive those who have wronged you. Forgive people. Um, I, I once heard, heard this. I heard that holding a grudge or really bitterness was like drinking poison and expecting it to kill the other guy. Um, y'all ever heard that before? I think that's a little bit funny, but it paints a pretty good picture. Um, really, what's going to happen whenever you drink the poison? It's going to kill you, not the other guy. Um, I hope you get that. So let it go. Um, I actually thought about singing for you all because everybody knows Frozen, right? Um, yeah, I'm, I'm going to let that go. Um, let it go. Forgive. Yeah, woo. All God's people said amen. Um, praise God for what he's done. Forgive people who have wronged you. Praise God for what he's done. And that, as you praise God, it will necessarily change your focus. If you are focused on the good things of God and praising him for them, it will change your focus. Instead of focusing on the darkness, on the problems, in the middle of the night. These shepherds were sitting out here in the dark. In the middle of the dark. And they ended up praising God. Why? Because their focus was changed. It was from their darkness. Instead, they saw these angels come and they were told about a savior. Their focus was changed. So instead of focusing on the problems, on the darkness of night, on the poor state we are in, we need to begin to focus on Christ's power, his purity, his virtue, his justice. And whenever we do that, worries fade. Worries fade. So this Christmas, I want you to have a truly joyful Christmas. I really do. I want you to have a joy-filled Christmas. And how do you do that? Well, you shift the focus from the hurry, all the stress, all the stuff that comes with the season. I know you got stuff you're responsible for. So do I. I got more Christmas shopping I got to do. Um, so I get it. But whenever we shift our focus from all the stuff, from all the stuff to the one who is true, to the one who is honorable, to the one who is just, to the one who is pure, to the one who is lovely, to the one who is commendable, to the one who was virtuous, to the one who is praiseworthy. Whenever we shift our focus to him, I promise your, your Christmas will be joyful. Um, so think about that this Christmas. And just so you know, this sermon is not just for Christmas. If you want a joy-filled life, 365 days a year, um, these principles hold true. Forgive people. Forgive people. I want to urge you to start with that. And then thank God for what he's done in your life and in the lives of those around you and focus on his goodness and the goodness of his creation. Um, and if we do that, I promise there will be joy in the church. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, I am thankful that we can be joyful people. Um, 
not just like we say we are joyful in some strange um, subjective way, but Lord, like objectively joy-filled. Lord, and we can have that not because of any of the good in us or any of the good um, in, in things. Lord, I, I suppose there are good things, but Lord, ultimately we can be joy-filled because of the goodness that you have and that you've created and that you reveal to us in Jesus. Um, Lord, I pray that this Christmas season, even as we, as we move past into the new year, Lord, I pray that we would be joyful people. Um, that we would retrain our hearts and our minds to focus on your goodness. Um, Lord, and I pray that as, as we see that joy just well up in your church, I pray that we would also see others who are not a part of your church look at us as if we are crazy, look at us as if we are strange, because in the middle of the night, in the middle of the darkness, in the middle of the hardships, we have a peace that surpasses anything that they can understand. So, Lord, I pray that we would see people wonder about what it is that the church has, all because of the joy you've given us in Jesus. Um, Lord, and as a result of that, I pray that you would open doors, that we might be able to share the reason we have hope. Um, And we would see many come to know you and experience that same joy. Lord, I'm thankful that you've promised that you're coming again. And we look forward with anticipation um, as we prepare and we hope, Lord, Uh, I pray that we would be joyful as we look forward to the day you come to right all wrongs. Um, Father, if there are those who dread that day, I pray that they would see that that dread is only because they don't have the Savior that they need. And Lord, I pray that you would show them their sin, call them to repentance, that they might be saved also. Um, Lord, I pray that you would make your word effective today as only you can. And I ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.